Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am Sunny, and I'm so glad you're here. Episode two of Sperry coming at you hot. You know, I was driving and trying to upload... Um, the last episode and was desperately searching for a title so I could quickly get this that first episode up. And Sperry was the best that I could come up with. But to be honest, I think it's kind of good. You know, I'm one for a play on words and uh, we love it. We're here to dissect and to psychologically analyze from a, a complete amateur's perspective all of the thoughts and um, emotions behind Prince Harry's new memoir, Spare. I will say this, there have been so many headlines that have come out since this book was released that make it really difficult to focus on only the book. Like, I, I want to talk about the fact that he just came out and said he wants to teach his family a lesson and that they know what they did and they need to apologize. I mean, there's so many juicy things happening in the context of this individual that it's going to be really hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard to focus on the book because there have been so many um, bits and bots that have been taken from his recent interviews that I feel like are just really juicy. And hopefully we can sort of work those in, those headlines in as we talk about this. But I want to just quickly note that what we're going to be covering in this episode picks up at about chapter part one, chapter 38. This book is long guys. Long, long, long. Like, I, I believe the total listen time on Audible was 15 hours. I don't typically listen. I like to read, but um, I don't have that kind of time to sit, to sit and read this book if I want to get this, these episodes out in a timely manner. And also, you have the added benefit of hearing someone tell their own story when it's so personal. I like that. I do not like a fiction book in Audible. It's very distracting. I don't know what kind of audio equipment they use, but the S's and the th th the T's, they sound weird and muffled sometimes. But this listening experience has been really great. And um, anyhow, so however you're consuming the book, um, just a heads up that that's how I'm listening. And, and yeah, let's get into it. Episode two is going to cover the tail end of part one of the book and about half of part two. So the big themes here as we get into this section are his time in the military, his first girlfriend in love, Chelsea Davy, and essentially just growing up. This is the Bildungsroman portion of the no of the memoir, if you will, which if you recall, <laughs> I might be the only dork who does from like ninth grade English class. It's like a novel that talks about someone's formative years, like how they spiritually grow. It's their spiritual arc. And this covers the point in time from Harry graduating high school and taking his gap year and going into the military. So it takes you from, I don't know what, 17 through I'm at the point now where he's about 25 years old. And it's all about the transition from childhood to adulthood. And in very typical Harry fashion, it's uh, presented in a really complex sort of emotionally um, detailed way. I have to say, listening to him tell his story and, and his voice just, it just adds an element. Like you hear the, you hear the emotion coming through as he's reliving some of this stuff. So as far as books to listen to versus read, try to listen. Cause this one, you get that added benefit of sort of feeling his 
emotions as he talks. Okay, let's pick up chapter 38. It was no secret I wasn't the family scholar. Through a process of elimination, Harry and his father arrive on the army specifically to be his next stop after graduating. But he has a little bit of time to finish at Eton and... um you know, he has his gap year coming up, but this in this part of the book, we sort of pick up on him reconnecting with his father. There are certain points of this book where you don't get the impression, put it this way, that Prince Charles at the time was Prince Charles and Harry are, you know, texting each other, like calling to check in. You know, me, I call my mom every day. What are you doing? We talk for an hour while she's making soup about, I don't know, how to get a stain out of laundry. I mean, it's just like pointless conversations. You do not get the impression that Harry and his father talk unless there's a big point coming up in their life. Like talk deeply, I mean, or connect and and essentially deliberately reach out to, to one another unless there's something big happening. Like, you know, he's graduating. So like, we got to sit down and talk about this. But we, we, we don't get the feeling, and this is part of the wounding of Harry, that he is putting on display time and time again in this in this book. We don't get the impression that there's this hey I can you can call me whenever bud mentality happening here. So this conversation with his father which kicks off this portion of the book that we're going to be talking about today is interesting because um it's it, they seem to again this is just an observation connect so rarely on this deep emotional level that it's sort of almost you get the impression that it's frustrating for Harry to have some of these conversations because those points he realizes, God, we really don't connect or my dad really isn't that emotive, which Harry clearly is a very emotional and complex sort of um, expressive, I guess, person. I think we're all complex. It just depends on how much we choose to sort of outwardly show that. Um, so, yes, his dad says the army sounds like just the thing. Harry says it would be an homage. Oh, oh, okay. So wait, let's go back here for one second. So before he graduates, and we'll get back to his gap year, he had to act in a play at Eton before he graduated. It was a requirement to graduate. And you hear him go through this whole thing like, oh my gosh, I never knew this. And like, what am I going to, I'm going to be up on stage. I'm not comfortable with this. Turns out the um, play that he would be acting in was Much Ado About Nothing as Conrad, which a character which he describes as a drinker, loyal but also immoral, above all, a sidekick whose main role was to give the audience a laugh or two. Being Okay, so wow. Um, he says he was assigned this role by his instructor, and he couldn't help but pause and think if there were any um, sort of comment, if there, there were any you know, if there was any commentary between the character chosen for him and his real-life self. This was the time in the book where he talks about being pegged as the party prince and whether right or not um, being cast as the foil to the character of his brother, who very publicly or publicly, at least, was very stoic and calm and had a, you know, a, not a party vibe to him. And Harry really struggles with this. Um, he really does not seem to like the titles and the descriptors that are given to him by other people. And he talks a lot about the repeated instances where he was papped, which is, I, you know, the paparazzi. We call them paps. 
which is weird because that's what I called my grandfather. <laughs> Side note, um, but being papped while he's out doing things. And he said, I was always cast as more of a partier than I was. And I was never this, I was never in rehab. And that was a story that was made up. And so he's just really, he's like, okay, here I am now in this play. And I'm even being cast as the drinker in the play. Um, but he finds that he has an, a knack for acting. And this was really interesting. He says, being royal, it turned out, wasn't that different from being on stage. Acting was acting, no matter the context. He talks about going through this play, how proud he was that his dad showed up. You know, as we've established by this point in the book, his dad was somewhat of a bookworm growing up and retained that sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, nerdy quality about him. You know, he was less of a, I was going to use, I was going to use the word man's man, but then I was and instantly realized that these days you can't say that because whatever. Um, he's less of a, less of a, what do we say? Man with traditional masculine tendencies and more so of an introvert, a man who, as Harry said, appreciated Shakespeare and how delighted he would be that his dad, who loved this part of English literature, would be able to watch his son perform this play. And he's like really excited about having his dad in the audience. And his dad is really happy to be there. And he sits there right in the, you know, right in Harry's field of vision. And as Harry's on stage delivering these lines with what he thinks is impeccable comedic timing, he looks into the audience and realizes his dad is laughing at all of the wrong times. And not only was it distracting for his performance, but it was just also awkward and frustrating. And if you, you know, if you've performed, you know that sometimes when your concentration is sort of broken in some way. It's like kind of hard to get back into character, so to speak. Um, he said after the play that he met with his dad and Charles didn't even realize what he had been doing. Uh, you know, he, he was just so engrossed in enjoying his son, apparently. And Charles said, you know, my own dad did the same thing to me when I acted in, in university or in, in school. And Harry said, is each generation doomed to repeat itself? He asks. He has a lot of these questions throughout this entire book that can sort of be looked at as um, having double meaning. Um, when we're talking about generations repeating itself, you can't help but be forced out of the moment for a second and realize that Harry is choosing to break a pattern in his family. He's breaking the rules. He's physically removing himself from his home country. He's removing himself from his royal obligations and... Um, and jobs, and there's just this constant undercurrent of Harry the Rebel. Like, he's he's very aware of the machine that he was born into and the roles and the expectations that were placed on him. And you sense from an early age that he bristles against all of this. And when he asks that question, is each generation doomed to repeat itself? You can tell almost as an unsaid afterthought him thinking, not anymore. We go through the part of the book where he's <clears throat> completing his education at Eton. He said, I felt a distinct pause in my nonstop eternal self-criticism. He was proud of himself. And then the axe drops. Again, through the press, an accusation that he says was completely false. He was accused of cheating. Um, I believe it was an, <laughs> an art exam final exam which he says in the book like how could you how could you even really cheat at art um he was eventually cleared of the charge but he says he felt deflated the damage was done the accusation stuck 
He says he was so frustrated by this accusation and by the latest in a string of false headlines that have come out about him that he wanted to hold a press conference and tell the world, I didn't cheat, but he had to go along and not complain. He said the don't complain, don't explain rule was held. And that's when he says the caricature of Prince Thicko started. He's being cast in a role that he hated. Thicko, like you're thick, you're dumb. Just kind of sad. Um, and he brings up a really interesting observation when he's talking about this latest headline, this cheating headline that eventually is proven false. And he said, it's really difficult to live by the don't complain, don't explain policy and to be told to completely ignore the media when in reality, British papers were everywhere in the palace. Now, I had the impression that the royal family would try to distance themselves as much from that coverage as possible. It was kind of surprising to me that, I mean, I guess you do have to know, you have to sort of have a pulse on the people that, um, you know, whose opinions of you matter the most to sort of dignify your existence. But it really didn't occur to me that they would have these rag sheets in their, in their palace. It's wild to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, they read the Daily Mail. Like they're going through their Daily Mail app too and their mirror or whatever it is. Um, I found that to be interesting. And you can understand how frustrating it would be to constantly be told, don't complain, don't explain, when the very people closest to you are looking at that same coverage and being swayed in one way or another by those headlines as well. So that's really interesting. So thus begins Harry's gap year, the break between high school and universities. The first thing Harry would do in his gap year is go to live with friends of his mom on an Australian farm. He was going to be a jackaroo. A jackaroo is um, Brit uh, not British, uh, Australian slang for a cowboy. So it's like um, you work sh with the sheep and the cattle on the land and you, you know, you keep things in check. You're like an outdoorsman, right? You're like herding. Do I sound so stupid? I have absolutely no technical terms to describe what it is I'm trying to say. But you get the point. They ride around on horses and they like make sure the cows don't wander far. <laughs> he talks a lot about how it was so different from home. Everything from the landscape to the weather to the fact that he was fully, fully undercover and unreachable by the press for the first time in his life. Um, he, he said because of the connection of this family to his mom, he really struggled to find things to talk about other than her. But what he did eventually find a lot of solace in was his work. He said work, that was what the Hills had to offer. And it distracted him. He says, you had to be a whisperer of the animals. You had to read the sky and the land. He would get up early hours before dawn. They had to round up stray cattle after daylight rose. And they had a lot of, he had a lot of solitary time, he said, um, being around animals and being on the land. He says, cows need their space. I felt them. He has many of these anecdotes in the book where he, again, draws these allegories or comparisons between him and other things. And he <clears throat> says... Young cows don't like being told what to do, especially when they're taken from their moms. They got emotional, and Harry says he was sympathetic and swears the cattle could sense it. So he did not end up making a good jackaroo in certain circumstances because he says the male cows would get emotional being taken from their moms, and um, that triggered something in him, and he had sort of a difficult time, you know, pulling them away. Um, 
let's see here. Oh, this is the origin of the nickname Spike as well. So uh, I don't know. I'm sure you're familiar if you've followed any royal coverage over the years, but people wondered where that nickname came from. Apparently, he was in a at, at an Australian zoo with this family, and he was asked to get in a picture, and he was near a hedgehog named Spike, which looked, quote, a right mess, you know, things sticking up everywhere. And his friend said, you look just like that hedgehog. And that's how the nickname was born with his hair that he had cut at Eaton that he says never grew back quite the same kind of stuck up in random places here and there. Um, these days seem to be the beginning of sort of this transition into adulthood that this portion of the book is really is really about for Harry. He says, Identity had also always been problematic. Most days, I didn't care what other people called me as long as it wasn't Prince Harry. He talks about how when he would get packages from for him with his name on it, he'd be sort of taken back to his old life for a moment, and he just really bristles at that. He really likes this new individual and independent identity is found he's finding outside of his family. In one package that arrived when he was working as a jackaroo in Australia was an announcement that Diana's old butler had written a book about her and that, um, again, just like when the a fake headline came out about him cheating, Harry has this initial impulse to go back, confront this man. This is, I wrote in my notes, Shades of Savior Harry, which is a, I believe, a defining characteristic of his personality. Um, he wants to fight he wants to fight back. He wants to defend. He wants to stand up. And I wonder if because he couldn't defend his mom and because he couldn't prevent the tragedy that happened to her, that he'll spend the rest of his life trying to fight anyone and anything that threatens his peace in any way. Um, it, he, he has, he calls it the red mist. And that's his anger, his, um, his desire to fight back that you know, a mist sort of clouding his eyes and she just wants to react and come back and defend and fight. And that's another instance where you see that he has been stifled in his ability to speak out and react and in his eyes defend his honor, defend the honor of people he loves. And it's so interesting to contrast that to today's Harry, who has been on what many would say a months long purging of feeling and emotion that one can only get the sense that he's been waiting his whole life to do this. Everybody keeps asking, well, why, why doesn't he just shut up? Well, this is why, and this is obviously why. If you listen carefully to this book during so many moments of his childhood and of his ad adolescence and his time as a young man, he is told you cannot react. You cannot respond. He is told to deny that thing that is, seems to be so innate to him, to speak up and defend. And now that he is no longer in the family, you can finally understand why, or in an official capacity, I should say, you can understand why that's all he wants to do. This has been bottled up in Harry for decades. So who knows how long it'll continue? I mean, but when you when you start to see the many instances in which Harry feels that he had been silenced unjustly. You can begin to understand why he cannot stop talking now. We cover the point where he comes back to Britain. He met a page three girl at a bar. That's like the, you know, I think like a page six here, just like double the number and cross the ocean, <laughs> you know, like a, a star. Um, talks about how the press found out he was disgusted that they were looking down on her for who she was. He just rages against classism. 
and the thought that some people think they're better than others. This to me is one of Harry's greatest, greatest qualities. How cool is it that a person born to the ultimate privilege recognizes the thing that, you know, we've been saying forever over here that no man, every man is created equal. No man is better than the next. And that our ability to work and, um, you know, create our own success defines us as individuals, not where we're born, to whom we're born or how we're born, but what we do with that life after we're born. And he just, who knows how the rest of the royal family is or if they really are as, what's the word I'm looking for, snobby, <laughs> as you get the impression he's painting them as, but he really gets pissed when people around him are making jokes about people not having the same amount of money or the titles or you, I mean, he seems like a down to earth kind of chap. You know what I mean? Um, chapter 44, he talks about having to give an interview to the quote dreaded press talking about how in the week of his mother's death, everyone had agreed that the press was a pack of monsters, but he has to do, he has to fulfill these obligations. He can never quite say what he wants to say is part of the problem. So he goes through these um, various points in his, even in his military career where he's forced, he's compelled to give these interviews to the press and you can just sense the utter disgust in the fact um, that he truly, truly loathes them. In chapter 45, we talk about his meeting Chelsea Davies. So we remember her, right? If you've seen any sort of even sprinkle of royal coverage over the years, you've probably seen pictures of him with his pretty blonde girl. She was different, he says, and that kept coming up again and again throughout this portion of the book. Quote, she seemed wholly unconcerned with appearances, with propriety, with royalty. Unlike so many girls I met, she wasn't visibly fitting herself for a crown the moment she shook my hand. She seemed immune to that common affliction, sometimes called throne syndrome. It was similar to the effect that actors and musicians have on people, except with actors and musicians, the root cause is talent. I had no talent, so I had been told again and again, and thus all reactions to me had nothing to do with me. They were down to my family, my title, and consequently, they always embarrassed me because they were all so unearned. I always wanted to know what it would be like to meet a woman and not have her eyes widen at the mention of my title, but instead to widen them myself using my mind, my heart. With Chelsea, that seemed a real possibility. Not only was she uninterested in my title, she seemed bored by it. Oh, you're a prince, yawn. Better yet, she was remarkably uncurious, end quote. Now, Chelsea was the daughter of, I believe, a couple who owned a, um, let's see, Chelsea Davy Parents. They owned a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a plot of land. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a, something to do with animals. He's South African farmer. Ba, 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 ba. We'll find it. Um, anyway, she was born and raised in Africa. You get the sense that she was truly of the land. She's from Zimbabwe. Her parents, in one point, Harry explains them in greater detail, but I believe his words were, you couldn't have put together better potential in-laws than them. Oh, gosh, I'm like, ooh, don't let Megan listen to this part. I mean, listen, the irony of... The irony of him going from a woman with, and this is no hate, no shade to Megan's, just, you know, just don't. Um, but these are cold, hard facts. The, the, the irony of going from dating a woman who had a very close and 
traditional relationship with her parents, parents that Harry seemed to love and want to be around, to marrying a woman who has, with one of her parents, a broken relationship. Not only a broken relationship, but a broken relationship that played out on the world stage and sort of, you know, uh, kind of cast a shadow on him and his family in the process. It's just, it's not lost that you have to, yes, it's not lost the sort of differences between the father-daughter relationship between these two pivotal and important women in his life. Um, they said, they told Harry, I think your body was born in Britain, was, but your soul was born in Africa. Um, this is the point of the book, too, where we get into his father finally marrying Camilla. Go back to the point in the first part where we discussed his really complicated feelings that he had about Camilla sort of knowledge that this was a woman who made his dad tremendously happy but also who was the third wheel the third person in the marriage and who in his mind was if not directly responsible for his mother's death you never hear him drawing that conclusion was at least partially responsible for the unrest that led to Diana's leaving that led to her being gone sooner than she should Harry says about Prince Charles and Camilla, quote, they took star-crossed lovers to a whole new level. He also talks about how it appeared they were meant to be, and no matter how much it might sting, acknowledging their destiny was a big part of them, meaning William and Harry, accepting her and this new marriage. But he, he also runs through this interesting point when I guess they were trying to plan the wedding and all of these Things kept getting in the way. Um, the venue couldn't be locked down for various reasons, and the date couldn't be locked down for a while. And he says, um, you know, you can't help but think that fate was maybe intervening. Or mummy, just kind of thinking her, thinking of her as like, you know, puppeteering these wedding complications from on high. Um, every time he says he looked at his dad during this marriage ceremony with Camilla, he felt like he was losing him. I knew this marriage was taking him away from us. I saw Pa's smile, though, and it was hard to argue with that. One of the things I wanted most, still, was for my father to be happy. Maybe she would be less dangerous if she were happy. Meaning Camilla. Just like it's that last barbin. He's got to get that last little zinger in. Um, but you come to realize why he has these complicated feelings for Camilla. Not only for the aforementioned reasons, but also he suspects strongly that she was the leak on some sensitive family information getting out at one point or another. He said there were some meetings that she had had with William at one point where this information was leaked to the press and there was literally no one else in the room. And he knows his brother wouldn't run to the press with this. So he has um, kind of keeps her at an arm's distance. You get that vibe. Like, yes, you make my dad happy. Yes, this seems to be fate. This seems to be meant to be. But you kind of stay over there. In chapter 50, we talk about the introduction of Kate, William's new girlfriend. Kate, she was light. She was fun. She liked clothes. Light as in like, well, I mean, she is very thin, but also like lighthearted. Um, and he dives right into the Nazi controversy. So at this point, William and Kate had only been dating for a short time and they were attending an out of Africa themed party. William's outfit was to be a Barishnikov-style lion outfit. And if you're wondering how a professional ballet dancer and a wild African safari animal can be united into one costume, apparently it was like a leotard, like a full-body leotard, with some sort of 
lion accessories. We're not obviously seeing any pictures, but we're led to believe that this was a ridiculous costume, as Harry says, especially from behind. It's just seeing his brother in a full body ballet outfit with a um, with a lion's mane attached to his head. Um Harry, this, okay, this is really juicy. So as we're introducing Kate into the story and we're hearing how she and William are getting on, immediately Harry starts talking about how much he likes her. He says, I liked making her laugh. He said, I thought about the fact that I, would, I was losing my brother to her. Again, common theme here. People aren't moving on with their lives. He's losing them. I would love, I mean, okay, armchair psychologist, right? Um... There's, there's got to be some sort of attachment theory at work here. Having experienced the loss of his mother at such a young age, traditional milestones to Harry aren't now seen as just that. They're seen as a loss to him. It's felt personally. It's felt directly in relation to him. And you can understand why. He always looks, it seems, okay, I should... Put a little caveat, a little asterisk there. It always seems that when the people closest to him are moving on with their lives, it's attached to some sort of sense of loss on Harry's part. But in regards to William and Kate, he says, he comforts comforts himself saying he dreamed of laughing with him and her one day and his own girlfriend too. So, you know, good vibes. We have a good relationship with Kate off the jump, at least. Then we get into the part of the story we know is coming. Harry was trying to find a costume for this party, and it came down to two options, a British pilot uniform or a Nazi uniform. And how when he mentions these two options to both William and Kate, they say the Nazi uniform. And then they both howl, meaning, you know, laugh loudly when they tell him to wear this. He says he wore it to the party and no one looked twice at my costume, he said, which I put down as a small win. What happens, though, as we know, is that somehow a picture of Harry gets leaked to the press in this outfit. The interesting part in this is that he says he believes that the person selling this picture was trying to sell William's likeness and that Harry was just sort of caught in the background of one of these images and that it was not even the intent of the seller originally to reveal this about Harry, but it sort of just ended up happening because he was in another of the images. And that's when starts, quote, a firestorm which I thought might engulf me. I thought I might die of shame. Shame. My brain had been shut off, and perhaps it had been shut off for some time. That's his explanation for why he wore this costume. Um, interestingly enough, he goes back and, of course, talks with his dad about this, and he says his dad was surprisingly sympathetic and kind about it. He says, youth is a time when you are, by definition, unfinished. His father was kind and warm and understanding because Harry says, quote, he knew all about humiliation. Move into the following chapters where Harry meets with the chief rabbi of Britain and has what you can't describe any better than uh, just a complete realization of his stupidity. He says, I arrived at his house feeling shame, and now I felt something else, a bottomless a bottomless self-loathing. But the rabbi told him not to be ashamed, but to be motivated. He spoke to him with forgiveness. He said, stupid things we do don't have to reveal one's true nature, that seeking absolution is the important part. So this is Harry growing up on a world stage. And again, you can understand why he hates the press. 
having forced him into, well, he made a really bad decision. So this is not me justifying that, but um, he, he begins to associate the press revealing all of his quote unquote stupid moments of youth with these, with these giant, um, you know, moments of self-loathing and shame. I mean, this is not a person who is ever going to be able to go through life and make mistakes. I'm not saying this is just a small mistake, but bear with me. He cannot make a single mistake without it being reported on widely. So interestingly enough, he goes that you get a sense. Again, this is a part in the book where it's really valuable to be listening to the author read his own story because you hear the emotion coming through. Then we move on to the part of the book where he's talking about Looking at photos of the crash scene where his mother died, um, throughout this part of the book, um, we hear a little less directly about his mother and how she how she passed and his anger toward the press, but sort of pops up in random moments because he's still in this portion of his life where he believes that this could potentially not be true. Like I said in the first part, he thought that there was a chance when he was young that his mother was not dead and that she was hiding out, waiting for things to calm down so that she would come back, get her boys and go back to life. It's truly, truly heartbreaking. And Harry, as he grows, starts to realize that part of accepting the reality of his mom's death might have to include seeing proof of it. So he is given from a trusted member of the palace photos of the crash scene he says he only began to realize as he was looking at them that these quote unquote golden halos that were showing in and around the crash scene were in fact the flashes of the paparazzi's cameras not one of them was checking on her they were just shooting 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 the last thing mummy saw on this earth was a flash bulb i started or i stared i'm sorry trying to make myself cry but i couldn't because she was so lovely and so alive. So he slams these photos shut and he goes back to that coping mechanism where he talks about maybe there's a small chance that she's still out there alive and hiding. He says the photos really didn't show much. He talks about how beautiful she looks even, even in these photos near death. It's really wild. It's really powerful and intense. Now we get back into Harry going back to Britain, graduating from the military academy. And um, this was interesting. So he he goes through, starting around chapter 53 and beyond, his military experience, um, pushing himself, learning to push his physical boundaries, learning to be broken down, only to be built back up, not as Harry the Royal, but as Harry you know, a member of the army, a, a brother in arms. And it's really powerful. I, I I, think he dedicates so much of his book. And again, I'm on chapter 38 right now, I believe, in part two. And it's still covering his military experience. So there's a, a lot about that here. Um, But this military experience was great for Harry because this was a moment where he defines himself as an individual outside of his family, where his 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 accomplishments in the physical realm and even in the emotional and mental realm, you know, the pain that he's able to endure and the challenges that he's able to overcome finally puts him, he believes, at par or even better than his brother. He said, for one brief moment, spare outranked heir. Um, so he this is the part where we go with him to his experience in Afghanistan. And he says at one point, 
please put me on the battlefield where there are clear rules of engagement. Um, in various points of this portion of the book, there's a lot of complication getting Harry onto the battlefield. And I don't want to go through all of them, but at various points, because of his title and who he is, he cannot, as soon as his location is revealed, he has to be pulled from battle. So we go through this first whole part of um, him serving in Afghanistan. And again, this was when he was in the military as, I believe, an air, forward air controller in 2007 and 2008, uh, when his location is compromised, which he says was initially published in a small newspaper and then republished on the, quote, worthless website of another reporter and his location is compromised and he has to come out. He goes back into training, comes back, spends some time in Britain, and then he goes to retrain as an Apache pilot and ends up serving again between September of 2012 and 2013. The relationships that he has with his brothers serving and with the people who are, I don't even know what to say, his superiors, I guess, military superiors that help train him, for example, with the um, Apache chopper, he has really powerful connections with some of these men outside of his family. Um, again, he is reaching for, it seems, a connection with these people that he has said time and time again is a, not present in his own family. So this portion of the book, and I'm going to round things out shortly, and then we will come back and finish things out, hopefully, with one final, final episode. But um, this portion of the book also covers his breaking up with Chelsea. So between, I believe, his first and second tour in Afghanistan, he comes back home and realizes that through visiting her several times in Africa back and forth, that this is just not going to work. And he says, um, she, I would never want to put her through what it would take to stay by my side. Um, and so they break up, he comes back to Britain, he starts training for his second deployment. And that's where I'm at right now. And that's where we're going to come back to in episode three. But, um, let's just briefly, briefly talk about what we think in general of, Harry's Endless Media Blitz. And we'll wrap things up on this note and come back to discuss some final thoughts with the final episode of Sperry. Um, I have said this from the beginning. I am a real fan of vulnerability, and I think it shows something really strong about an individual when they're willing and able to expose parts of themselves that may not be appealing to the public right? Especially when you're in a position like that. I worry as I'm continue, continuing to listen to this, that um, especially considering there could be another book in the works from Megan, that we are, gosh, this is hard to say because I'm not even through the book, but that we're past the point of appreciating that. And it almost, it's starting to feel a little uh, gratuitous. Um, who knows? This is just my, these are just my thoughts as I'm, like I said, about two thirds of the way through the book. Um, and it's hard to say because like, I'm not even done. And like the revelations don't even end here. And he came out on another recent interview and said he could have filled an entire second book. Another, in fact, I believe he said he cut 400 pages from this manuscript. So not only could he tell 
other stories about his family, but he already has, and they exist somewhere else. This brings up the really, really important question that I think I've been ruminating on as I'm going through this book and I'm at this point. At what point does someone's right to freely express their story come in direct conflict with other people's right to privacy? And I think this is something that royals are not. We should all ponder at some point with social media and the access we have to other people's quote unquote stories these days. Not all of us are sitting here writing novels and memoirs and exposés. However, a lot of us every day, whether we consider it or not, are revealing bits of important information about other people through our social media, through our, you know, even even when I'm recording a podcast, I try to be very, very aware of the fact that the things that I share personally about my children, about my family and friends, for example, respect their right to privacy. And that's where we get really, really messy with Harry and his family. I said in the last episode, I don't know how a reconciliation could realistically happen after this. I I tend to still feel that way being at this point in the book. I'd like to sort of check back in on that feeling as we go through. I think it would take at this point um, not only a, a sit-down conversation, which Harry seems to insinuate at multiple points in not only this book, but interviews that his family is either incapable or totally disinterested in. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm really trying to look at this from the other perspective because I never want to put these episodes out as either a full support of one side or a full condemnation of the other. Um, you know, if I'm being honest, like I said before, I'm probably more of a Megan in life. You know, I, I think realistically a lot of us Americans are, we are, um, we're not, I don't know. We're we're not born with the same reverence for the royal family and um, that type of tradition that they are over there. And so I understand where they're coming from more than ever. And I continue to sort of be supportive of the fact that sharing this information can be a real important step in healing. But I'm also looking at it from the other side. And William and Kate seem like lovely people in their own right. Um, would I want to party with them? Probably not. But, you know, give me Harry in Vegas any day over William anywhere. But uh, I'm not sure that I know, not even that. I know that I, they they don't deserve this either. A complete, not a complete, a partial telling of their own identity through the eyes of another person. I can only imagine what would come out about me if I let, if I let only my parents tell the story or my sister tell the story or my husband tell the story. Um, yeah, you know, who knows how this is going to end. I really, really am going to be, as I'm sure you are, keeping a close eye on what happens ahead of the coronation in May, if they'll get an invite to King Charles' coronation or if things will be so deeply beyond repair at that point and deeply damaged at that point that it won't even happen. But anyhow, guys, that's it. I'm going to wrap things up go back to some other stuff around the house and we'll be back with one final episode of Sperry recapping everything else. As always, drop me a DM. Let me know what you are most curious about hearing in regards to the story. Oh, wait. Okay. Before I go, I, I already asked that question and you, a couple of you already sent some really interesting thoughts in. Um, Okay, so I asked what people thought about it so far. Someone wrote back on Instagram saying, I'm impressed by his fairness so far. I'm at the point where he goes to Afghanistan. So 
Interesting. Um, love it. What do you think the whole story needed to be told? That's interesting. And I, I'm going to follow up with the person here to maybe discuss this further. Um, this The whole story, according to whom, is my own question. Uh, someone said, I'm British. He needs to be stripped of his titles. He is a Judas. Wow. That's actually, um, that's an entertaining response, you know? We have strong feelings about this. And finally, oh, I'll link this in show notes as well. As a journalist, I have been watching and listening to these interviews with great interest because I share the same thought that this final commenter made, which is um, submitting this article that Emily Giffen wrote about the questions that actually should be asked of Prince Harry. So hold on, let's find this. Emily Giffen. She put this on Katie Couric Media, so katiecouric.com. And these are the questions that we should be asking him. I'll link this as well. You mentioned in the preface to Spare that your father and William didn't know why you felt the urgent need to leave the UK. And the book was a vehicle to explain them. Was reconciliation one of the goals in the book? And in hindsight, do you think you have increased the probability of reconciliation or has sharing it with the world jeopardized that? Why didn't you share your written story with your family without publishing it? Oh, gosh, good. I'm not going to read these all, but just suffice it to say, these are the same questions that have gone through my head for every interview he's done as well, which I think he's been getting softballed left and right because people want access. Of course, Anderson Cooper wants to sit down with him. Of course, whoever, you know, whoever's getting access, they 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 want him. So they're not going to push him too far. They don't want the red mist to come down and take over them. Um, but these questions do need to be asked at some point. And I think hopefully we're getting there soon. You know, we're, we're allowing the final purge, so to speak, of his emotions and thoughts and, um, the publicity side of it to happen. But then when things settle, I would love to see them actually answer these questions. Anyhow, I'm rambling on. I hope you guys enjoyed. Drop me your thoughts on Instagram at Sunny About It, and we will talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs>